I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Rewatchability, part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network. I'm J.M. McNabb, joined as always by Robert Larone. Why, why are you talking like that? I was trying to be creepy. Oh. <laughs> Mission accomplished, I guess. Uh, we have a very special episode for you today. I know we say that every week, and usually we're lying, but this week uh, I am really excited to to dig in and talk about a movie that was a movie I haven't, I honestly haven't seen since I was a kid that I was oh, excited wow. to to revisit and talk about, and that is Michael Mann's Manhunter. Uh, from 1986. Wait, is Michael Mann the man that is being hunted in the title? Yes, it's M-A-N-N-H-U-N-T-E-R. Uh, no. I, I did always think that was funny, though, that, that his name is kind of in the title. Of course, this was the first cinematic iteration of, of Hannibal Lecter, the first movie to adapt right. one of Thomas Harris's... Well, not one of Thomas Harris's books, because they uh, Frankenheimer made a movie of Black Sunday... In the seventies, right. but this was the first uh, Hannibal Lecter book to get the, uh, the mm-hmm. big screen treatment. Um, but before we get right into it, I do want to take a moment and thank all of our Patreon donors, and those are the people that help keep the show going by donating a few dollars a month. They get the show early and ad free, and it does help us out. And sometimes you get bonus content. It's been a while since we've uh, updated any bonus contents, but we really have to do that, Rob. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's get on that. We will. All right, maybe we'll do a, a, a bonus episode about uh, something. If you have a suggestion for a bonus Patreon-only episode you want, could even be just like a topic or something you want us to discuss, send us an email, rewatchability at gmail.com, and we will uh, make that happen soon. Now there's just the two of us, because as we mentioned on last week's show, Blaine had a baby. Yeah. And so... he's dealing with that. 
He's not dragging us down anymore. <laughs> yeah, he's dragging his uh, son down. No. That's right. <laughs> well, let's talk about this movie. I mean, in in a way, I, I feel a little bad because this was just one that, you know, I think it's a big movie for like, you know, a, a certain type of, of movie fan or, or film fan. Mm-hmm. But uh, Cinephile. Yeah, it just weirdly happened to be like a movie I saw as a kid and had like that nostalgic hook for me. But right, Rob, did you watch this before? When, when did you first see this? I saw it first a couple of years ago. I I liked the Hannibal Lecter character when I was younger. I read The Silence of the Lambs when I was in high school, and I saw Red Dragon, the remake of Manhunter, right. uh, which is in the sort of Anthony Hopkins Hannibal universe. And I actually liked it. I thought it was pretty good, though I've I've now been told by the critics that I was wrong. So at that point... You know, this was just when Manhunter was sort of being critically reappraised, and people were saying, like, oh, a lot of people missed out on Manhunter, and it's got its own Hannibal Lecter, spelled differently. It's not (laughs) Anthony Hopkins, it's some guy named Cox, Brian Cox, and. uh, Never heard of him. Never, you know. That guy's going uh, nowhere. No, no, yeah. And uh, so I, I did check it out. I had a VHS tape of it uh, that I found somewhere, and I watched it, and, you know, I thought it was pretty cool. And then just at the beginning of the pandemic, which seems like a long time ago, <laughs> <laughs> I rewatched, or I, I, I finished watching the Hannibal TV show. And then at that point, when I was still steeped in the mythology, I went back and I rewatched Manhunter. Oh, wow. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, because the, to my great shame, I have not watched the third season of Hannibal yet. It's pretty, it's pretty solid. And I know that it's almost like a, a third version of the story, right? Because they do the Red Dragon yeah. arc. That's correct. Yeah, there are there are some there are some interesting twists to it. You know, they've done it a couple times, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's the same. It's the same story. I think I'm gonna watch it now. I it's not because I don't like it. I absolutely love Hannibal. I think it's one of the best shows of the you know the century. Mm-hmm. But I, in a way, like I I haven't watched it because I do, I like having it to still watch. Right. You know. Yeah. Um. It's like a. It's like a. A bottle of aged wine, if we were the sort of people with money to keep wine, you know? Uh, we have to just watch seasons of good television. Yeah. No, I, yeah. And I, I think also the the end of the second season, like, it was, just, it was a lot. And it, it's not, it wasn't the kind of right. thing that made me want to, like, dive back in immediately when it came back on TV. So yeah, I I but I think now like having rewatched Manhunter, I think now would be a good time. So did you did you you watched it at the start of the pandemic? Did you watch it again for this podcast? Yeah. Okay. I did. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah. Also, I mean, it is great seeing Brian Cox since he's been so present and great in Succession. I mean, right. he's not it you get like the same like years turning almost as Hannibal Lecter maybe. I have also not seen Succession. Though I I've, I've oh. not seen any of it. Is it good? Yeah, it's it's good. I just don't like TV, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you should check it out. It's like movies but uh more. Well, I've been making more of an effort to like instead of just like putting on a TV show 
at night, probably like a silly TV show. I've been making more of an effort to like spend that time watching a new movie that I haven't seen or, you know, like an old movie, but, you know, something I haven't seen right. to watch something, a feature film instead of just like a few episodes of television. But I have heard Succession is good and I do love Brian Cox. So I will check it yeah, out. It's, it's great. I think the new season's coming out uh, soon as well. So that'll be. That'll be fun. I saw this movie, like I said, when I was a kid. I actually went back today. Wait, how how young when you were kid? Because this is, I mean, this is a movie with a serial killer. Were you like five? No, or... no, no. I was okay. uh, God, how eleven, maybe. Okay, I can't remember. Still pretty young. Maybe twelve. I. I actually went back and listened to the beginning of our. <laughs> we did a podcast about Silence of the Lambs. Right. And I went back and listened to the, a bit of it because we talked on that podcast about how I was like kind of obsessed with these books when I was a kid. Oh, wow. And specifically Red Dragon, I I loved. Uh, oh, wow. And I don't know why. In a way, like, I felt embarrassed about that until the Hannibal show came around because right. <laughs> in a way, because I, I was like, why did I like these books so much when they've just they've mostly yielded really bad movies and you know since silence of the lambs they have not not been great no but like they really ran that character into the ground. yeah the fact that like hannibal came around and found this kind of you know <laughs> this grotesque beauty to be mined from, from that source material kind of like made me feel a bit better about a be- about being such a fan uh, of those books when i was a kid but yeah specifically red dragon i loved and I, I, yeah, I don't even know what it was exactly. I think a big part of it was probably like I knew I shouldn't be reading <laughs> those books. Right. Like it, it was <laughs> way too violent and dark and adult for for whatever age I was. Uh, Jam, why is my pantyhose on your head? <laughs> uh, but I obviously knew about Silence of the Lambs. Like the movie had come out mm-hmm. before I had read the books, but I did not know about Manhunter until I'd read Mm. Red Dragon. And I think I just kind of, because this was pre-internet, and I think I just found out about it by by literally just stumbling upon it in the Leonard Maltin movie guide. (laughs) He's never steered you wrong. He really hasn't. And, you know, I, I mentioned this, I think, when we talked about Gremlins 2. I I was that I was thinking about ordering the Leonard Malton book mm. because that was a staple of my uh trips to the bathroom as a kid. Right. I did it. I pulled the trigger. I bought wow. both volumes. There's like a classic era and a modern era and I bought both of them and that's wow. that's what I take to the bathroom now. It's the old That's too much information. It's like honestly, it's like a time machine. It's a time machine to the bathroom of my youth. Away from your kids? <laughs> yes. Um, no, it's great. And yeah, so I think I just randomly found it and uh sorry this is going on way too long, but I wanted to see it, but it was not readily available. This was in in a time when there mm-hmm. were a, lo- a lot of video stores near me, like, but they were all chain video stores, you know? Oh. And like the Blockbuster and the Rogers video and the Jumbo video. None of them had it. Not only did they not have it, like they hadn't even... They wouldn't rent it to an 11-year-old? <laughs> no. I, well, they'd never even heard of it. Like they were... Like they, I, they would act like I was. We like, don't have adult films here, kid. <laughs> no, but I, I, you know, so I called around. No one even knew what I was talking about. 
And then I ended up calling a video store that was still in my neighborhood, but a little bit further. And uh, it was uh, an independently owned video store. Uh, mm. Well, I think there were a few locations of it, but it wasn't like a, a giant chain. And it ended up becoming my go-to video store. Uh, it was a store called Video Flicks. I think we've talked about it on the show before. I think maybe like Alex or someone went to it. But it, it was like a, a giant video store. Great selection. Became like a place where I spent a good part of my youth. <laughs> uh, and, and I called them and they were just like, yeah, we, we have Manhunter. And I, you know, I couldn't believe it. I freaked out. I went over. I picked it up and I rented it. And... Uh, I was immediately surprised by the font on the poster. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> because it's a big, you know, it's a, it's a scary, dark, edgy subject matter. And the font looks like, you know, it looks like the font that you would have made on an early Apple computer for like a, a school bake sale or something. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of like a cartoony, you know, early, <laughs> early yeah. word processing Man font. Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> and I liked it. Okay. Mm. Wait, only okay? Only okay. And I think that was because I had a certain attachment to the book. Right. And they do change a lot. Well, not maybe they don't change a lot, but they certainly excise a lot. They cut cut it down a lot. Right. And so I you know, I I liked it, but I didn't love it. And I've never really gone back and properly revisited it since, you know, finding out who Michael Mann is and, you know, wow. seeing most, if not all of his other movies. So I did. And selfishly, it is on Criterion streaming right now and, and it's mm. expiring at the end of the month. And I <laughs> wanted to watch it. So I suggested we do it. OK, that is my spiel for when I first saw Manhunter. Do you want to do the rundown, Rob? I will. So. It starts in the dark. We see like these this something something going through like a house and then you know it's passing bedrooms and then it sort of just looks in on this couple sleeping and it's very, very creepy. And then there's some new wave music, some like talking heads drums maybe, and a synthesizer <laughs> comes in. Cut to the beach. And it's William Peterson and Dennis Farina, and they're hanging out on a big old piece of driftwood on a log and, you know, just talking about the murders, talking about the crime. See, Peterson, he plays Will Graham. He is a retired FBI profiler. So, you know, it's just like that. Uh, what's that show? Is it my, my, Mindhunter? Hannibal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mindhunter is also a show that sort of like, you know, shows the FBI profilers, but from like a, you know, uh, you know, it's doing like the real world. This is like the fictionalization of that whole thing. But he is one of these guys, but he's retired because he had a particularly traumatic case, I guess, where he got fucked up by Hannibal Lecter who is now in jail, and he went a little bit, uh, he had some sort of episode. He had some sort of breakdown, and we don't know too much about it. We just know that for a while, he wasn't okay. And now that he's spending all this time on the beach, and it's beautiful, and it's, you know, very cinematic, he's kind of doing all right. He's he's hanging out with his kid and his beautiful wife, played by Kim Greist, and, you know, he's living the life. But Dennis Farina, 
the copiest cop that ever copped. He has. <laughs> he's an FBI agent, but <laughs> doesn't matter. He has the he has the stash. You know, wasn't he yeah, a cop he... in real life? I think he might have been. I, th- I think so. But he, yeah, he plays Jack Crawford, who, of course, in the Hannibal series, was played by Lawrence Fishburne. And that was the one that was hard. I know he was also played by like Scott Glenn and stuff, but like that was the one mm-hmm. that like I don't know if it's just because like Hugh Dancy says the name Jack so much in the Hannibal show, but that was the one. Like all the other characters, like okay, there's been a bunch of Hannibal actors, and okay, it's Will Graham, and I can right. see different versions of that. But yeah, Jack Crawford, like that name, just for some reason, is so closely associated with Lawrence Fishburne in that show for me now. Mm-hmm. He's just well, so good in it. Well, he sort of yeah he he definitely uh, takes the role, and it's so it's so much more expanded even than than here where it's pretty pretty big. And in the uh, Hannibal Lecter, you know, movies, I mean the Anthony Hopkins ones, it's right, like right, right. he's like a peripheral character almost. Right. Uh, I guess you know he's in there a lot, but anyway, he wants Will to help him with this uh, series of murders that's been happening and they don't know what's uh, who's who's killing all these people and it's not very cool and uh, and they think it's on a lunar cycle so the next time there's a full moon then this person is going to kill again and they've been calling the newspapers have been calling this guy the tooth fairy you think they'd come up with some kind of werewolf pun <laughs> yeah that's right take a look at your book of mythology be like okay yeah. full moon full moon vampires no okay sasquatch as we sasquatch. all know the tooth fairy only strikes on the full moon <laughs> hey if you lose your tooth when there's like a, uh, a half moon or a crescent moon you shit out of luck kid <laughs> Or your parents get to live. I don't know. One of those. But he doesn't want to do this case. Also, his wife doesn't want him to do this case. He doesn't want to get back involved because he might get damaged. But there's all these people dying, so he has to do it. And so he goes. They fly him out to wherever the first murder has happened, and he's staying in a hotel. And he's checking out the crime scenes, but... He's just not getting back in his groove, you know? Like, he's like, he's there, and he's like, okay, if I was a serial killer, what would I do? I would, you know, <laughs> come in this way and then stab a guy, probably. Maybe stab somebody else if there's another guy around. He He's just, he's not able to get into the mode. And so... Yeah, I thought he kind of got into it pretty quickly. I, he seems like... but. That's why he goes to see Hannibal Lecter, because he he can't find the scent. And so Hannibal Lecter, as played by Brian Cox, he is languishing in this jail cell, maximum security, because he's a big old psychopath. But (laughs) Well, okay, let's talk about Brian Cox for a minute. Okay. Just like as a performance, because Mm – and not just as a performance, but like as as a character who's presented in this movie and – you know, we, I can't help but like see it in comparison with the other movies and specifically Silence of the Lambs because, you know, going back and listening to our Silence of the Lambs episode, like one, one thing we really kept uh, kind of laughing at was how like cartoonishly dungeon like Hannibal Lecter's <laughs> cell is in that movie. And I think, mm-hmm. yeah, there is something about this movie. It's It's got that, you know, pristine white antiseptic yeah. cell. And it just makes, you know, the the character pops out more. It's, it's, in a, it's in a way it's creepier. I mean, not to knock that movie because it is a 
great movie in a lot of ways, but like it does comparing the two, like feel like it's trying way harder. And also the performance, like it's, it's also hard to totally separate the how Hannibal Lecter came across in that Silence of the Lambs movie versus like how we see him now because he's played it in so many goofy movies that followed yeah. it. But there is just something about it all that feels like it's trying to be creepy and it's trying to get under your skin. Whereas this is the opposite. It feels very grounded and real. You want to know how he's choosing them, don't you? thought you might have some ideas. Why should I tell you? You get to see the file in this case. And there's another reason. Pray tell. But you might be curious to see if you're smarter than the person I'm looking for. Then by implication, you think you're smarter than me since you caught me. No. I know that I'm not smarter than you. Then how did you catch me? You had disadvantages. What disadvantages? You're insane. You're very tan, Will. Your hands are rough. They don't look like cops' hands anymore. And the other thing is, like, the the way Brian Cox plays Hannibal Lecter is very, like, affable and mm-hmm. and charismatic in a way Absolutely. that, like, Anthony Hopkins just, like, you know, acts like a, like Freakster. an evil robot, <laughs> which is, yeah, like, it's compelling, but also, like, it doesn't even really make sense because he was, he was a psychiatrist. Like, who would go to that guy for therapy? <laughs> For, for more than one appointment, like like the other... They got fixed, Doc. <laughs> like the Brian Cox version, like you kind of get it. You get it why people let themselves be so vulnerable to him. Like, mm. I mean, he is the root of Will Graham's trauma in this story. And you can see even in their, the brief interplay between the two characters when he goes to see him, like you can see how he uses his charms, his character, his his presence to get under people's skin. And I think, I yeah, I, I do think maybe, again, maybe it's just because it's been ruined by subsequent movies, but if I were to, to judge right now between the two, I would say that was the better performance. That was the the creepier performance, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, the Anthony Hopkins Hannibal Lecter is so arch, and, like, he's supposed to be the the creepiest and the smartest and the most killiest of all the serial killers and he definitely like plays it with this big theatrical sort of air the brian cox is is so much more grounded it, but it's also it's a different sort of interaction that he and will are having than like anthony hopkins and jody foster that's are true also their the- introductions are almost the exact opposite from a visual standpoint because when we first see Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs, he's standing there staring straight ahead. Mm-hmm. With like, like the he's... mask, right? No, no, this is before that. He's just okay, standing yeah, in his cell, right. staring straight ahead. I'm pretty sure that's the first time we see him. As if he'd been doing that the entire time. And it's it's all about like his gaze. He's like a vampire. He's yeah, like Dracula. Totally. Whereas when we're introduced to Brian Cox, he's literally lying on his back with like facing the wall you can't even see his face we just hear his voice like it's it couldn't be more different and like and again it feels like the cox version is not trying as hard this is dipping into the trivial a little bit but uh i did watch an interview with brian cox where he talked about how he got the job Mm. and he was in a play uh i meant to write down the name of it to see if you knew 
the play, but uh, <laughs> I didn't. But he was in a play, and the casting director saw him and asked him to do a tape for Michael Mann to audition. And she asked him to to turn around. She said, uh, you know, I, I don't want to see your face. Like, just read the lines. And... He was like, why, why would you want – and so I think he did it, and he was like, why would you want me to do that? Like that's so you know against what an actor would want to do, especially like auditioning for a big movie. And he said, why, why would you have me do that? And she said, because when I went to see your play, like the angle of the seats she was in, she said she, <laughs> said she couldn't see him for the first 20 minutes of the play. Oh, and, yeah. And she said that was really affecting. Like, he was creepier when you couldn't <laughs> see him. And he said he took that idea and incorporated it into the way he is introduced in that part where he's lying with oh. his back to Will Graham. So, yeah, I, there's something about the Brian Cox approach to the character that, that looking at it now is, is it's, it's subtly uh, unnerving in a way. Mm-hmm in a way that the Hopkins one wasn't. Yeah, I, I agree. The play that he was in was called Rat in the Skull. That's it, yeah. Do you know that play? No, oh. but it sounds fucking intense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't get any information from Hannibal, and he sort of goes away, but he 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 promises to get Hannibal some of the files to look at, and he'll call Hannibal. He'll have some sort of, you know, don't call me, right? But Hannibal, he he at one point he gets a call with his lawyer and he does a little trick, a little phone freaking trick with a a stick of double mint gum and he he tricks he tricks the telephone operator into connecting him with like some book publisher and then he gets Will Graham's address and that ain't good. Meanwhile, Will is doing all the police work. There there are some like messed up parts. He's on an airplane at one point and he's like reading the files and then he falls asleep with photos of like, you know, the bloody crime Oh god, scene. that's awful, yeah. And like a little kid starts screaming. <laughs> yeah. Not cool, William Peterson. No. Yeah, he's he's getting into the mind of the killer in ways that like are uncomfortable. Like it seems like in the when he falls asleep on that plane, he's like having a dream of him and his family. And he almost looks at his wife in like this like weird murdery almost sort of way. I don't know. I don't know if that was intended, but that's what I got. Well, that's the whole, yeah, that's the whole thing is like, he's getting, he, his whole thing is he gets into the mind of yeah. the killer. Which... And it's not quite like the magical power that it is in, in Hannibal right. the TV series. <laughs> it's a bit of a magic power. Though there is a little bit of the like monologuing that, uh, that he also does like, you know, <laughs> I, I I open the door. I see the person standing there. Ah, well, it's also you know like uh, Hannibal when when Hannibal came out, like it's so stylized, it's so theatrical, and mm-hmm. I remember at the time that seeming like a little unusual for like a Hannibal Lecter story. But now going back to this, like oh my god, like th- that's what this is like. This, oh yeah. This is also like a a, a very synthy operatic, you know, over the top surreal take on those stories. So like right from the jump, like I think yeah, the, the Hannibal Lecter story was being 
told through that stylized sensibility. Yeah. It was just kind of in between like some of the other movies didn't didn't follow that trajectory, but yeah, certainly like the this movie set set a precedent for it. Well, it also does seem I think probably more stylized removed from the 1980s because it does feel very like I mean, it's it's like firmly crouched in like the 80s aesthetic. Obviously like Michael Mann's doing his own thing. Obviously it's like more cinematic, but it does feel like Oh, it's, you know, it's it feels so like 80s. an extension of like Miami Vice almost. You oh, know? totally. Like, yeah, there are the scenes that I mean, they're all the scenes of like paradise of like wherever Will Graham's beaches or whatever. It's so it's so eighties. There's like I'm pretty sure there's a scene where there is both saxophone and William Peterson wearing like uh, hot pink shorts. Yeah, yeah, and like a lot of shorts and like synth and saxophone, and it's just like it's it's eighties the movie a lot of times. I mean, I did see like the criticism. Some people were saying like that it is a little like schmaltzy or corn, not schmaltzy, but like corny and kind of like. I mean, there's a lot of scenes where like (laughs) William Peterson's talking to himself like. Oh yeah, I'm gonna get you, buddy. And like, <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> it does get. And, but I mean, like that's sw- the this movie, like a lot of Michael Mann movies, is like a big swing. And you know, mm-hmm. that's the risk you run when you take a big swing. And I'd rather see that than than a movie that you know the, the you know the sort of just nuts and bolts version of the story is boring, and you wouldn't want to watch it a second time. Well, so much of William Peterson's scenes are sort of by himself. Like, Dennis Farina comes and goes, but he doesn't have, like, a partner. He doesn't have, like, anybody that he's playing off of. It's just sort of him, which is, I mean, it's difficult, but it doesn't seem, like, it seems fitting to the story because he is isolated by these things that he has to experience. He's isolated from his family. He's isolated from his friends or whatever because he has to get into the mind of this serial killer and sort of process all of this really terrible imagery and all of that. So it, it does seem appropriate. I mean, the the other stylistic choices, like the music, I mean, I think that they sort of work because it seems so, it seems so sinister to have like all these scenes with like this, like weird poppy new wave music. I don't know. I think it, I think it works really well. Uh, though, the parts with the music that I don't like are the parts that are cribbed from Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb. It's like, why are we listening to Pink Floyd all of a sudden? <laughs> There's like a whole bunch of musical references to Pink Floyd material. There's like a bunch of the synthesizer stuff. Sounds like it could be off of Wish You Were Here or Animals. And then, yeah, it, it's 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 weird. But uh, I don't know. It, I guess it sort of works. But yeah. we also have... Tom Noonan as Francis Dollarhide, and he is this tall, creepy Tom Noonan-esque character who, I mean, he's the person who has been doing all of the murders. And we first sort of see him, I think we first, he sort of first comes into it when they try to entrap him through, like, the uh, the tabloid guy, right? Yeah, because yeah. Hannibal Lecter, he... He sets up this thing where he wants to write to Dollar Hyde and, you know, give him advice through the Tattler, uh, which is this uh, tabloid that this guy, Freddie Lowndes, runs or writes for. And this guy, you know, gets right into Will uh, Graham's face. And so they set up this thing, this like, first of all, they bait him 
they like write this story where they say you know that he molests them his male victims and he he can't get it up with members of the opposite sex and he probably had sex with his mom i do want to mention the the freddie lounge character is uh, the sleazy tabloid guy is played by Stephen Lang, mm-hmm. who's uh, you know you'd recognize him from a bunch of stuff, but most recently he's the creepy old man in uh, Don't Breathe. Oh, I don't know if you saw those movies. No, I didn't see it. He's also but... like the bad guy in uh, Avatar. Right, I did see that he was the bad guy in that. I didn't see Avatar, but he's uh, he's good in this. He, he has like a well, sometimes he's a little bit uh, cheesy. I think he's. I mean, he's like the cheesy, like tabloid, like sleaze ball. But then he's like the, a dark Jimmy Olsen or something. Yeah, in the scene that we're about to talk about, where Tom Noonan first shows up and he, you know, has to basically beg for his life. Yeah, I think he's, I think he's so good. Like, he, oh yeah, his character shifts so dramatically. Freddie Lowndes, your photograph. No. No what? No. Not me, please. Are you a man? Yes. Do you imply that I'm queer? God, no. Before me, you were a slug in the sun. You are privy to a great becoming and you recognize nothing. You're an ant in the afterbirth. Is your nature to do one thing correctly? Tremble. What a mm-hmm. creepy scene where he's got like yeah half the stocking on his head. Tom Newman. Yeah, and that's like really the only creepy visual bit that we get from the character. Like, I you know I I think I'm I'm used to yeah the the sort of like visual stylization of the Hannibal TV series and also the movies with like the with like the creepy half mask that Lecter has to wear. But other than that, like we. We just sort of see him being him. Like, there's a lot of seeing all of him. There was, like, in the book, and I think the remake, like, he's got this crazy giant red dragon tattoo. Yes. And they did, I don't know if they shot it, but there's certainly, like, you can see photos on the internet of them, like, painting the tattoo onto Tom Noonan's chest. Mm. But they didn't end up using it for some reason. I mean, they cut out... I think this is what I was a little disappointed about as a kid. They cut out a lot of the Red Dragon stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, there's one part, I think, in this scene we're talking about where he shows Freddie Lowndes, like, the William Blake painting. Mm-hmm. But they don't get it. Because in the book, it's all about, like... And I'm trying to remember it. Again, I haven't read the book since I was a kid. But it's all like he wants to, like, become the Red Dragon... Yeah. And, he, and he's obsessed with this painting and William Blake. And I think there's even a scene where he like, and I I don't think this was in the remake, but there's a scene in the book where he like flies to like London or wherever the painting is and like goes to the gallery and then like, I think rips the painting down and eats it. Yeah, that's definitely in the remake. Oh, is uh, it? Okay. Yeah, Ray Fiennes. Uh, I, I haven't seen the remake since it came out either, but I do remember that part being in the book yeah, yeah so like it, that. it was so much about the red dress and i think that i remember that being like a pretty compelling yeah. part of the story so it was a little disappointing that they didn't play that up in the movie i mean i'm i think it works now because i see the movie now to be so much of will graham's story that i mm-hmm. don't i don't mind them losing that stuff 
No, yeah. I I saw that that too that they had originally you know had the tattoo and all that, but yeah, I think it, I think it works without it, and I guess that there's something to be said for like the character of Dollarhide sort of using the tattoos to like reclaim himself because the his big thing is that he has like a scar on his lip and he feels like people look at him like he's uh, you know not normal right they think he's ugly i don't even think we find out the uh like the backstory of that i mean i also think like watching it now and watching it as like the a a movie about will graham like i think all that works because you know all we need the tom noonan character to be is sort of just this living embodiment of like this trauma that will has to overcome and we know that will is you know somehow horribly scarred from his encounter with Hannibal. So, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, having him just have this mysterious scar, I think, also just, like, reinforces that idea that that he is is this piece of Will's past that that he needs to to get over. Yeah. Well, I mean, the weird part about this movie, and I think, you know, something that makes, like, the the Red Dragon story really unique amongst all of these sort of crime thrillers that came out at the time is that there's the weird, like, rom-com love story between (laughs) (laughs) Tom Noonan and uh, Reba. Reba McLean is the character's name. She works in a photo lab where she develops, I guess, like, low-light photographs. uh, And and played by the great Joan Allen. That's right. And she is blind, so she can't see that he has like this uh this scar on his mouth and she asked to like you know touch him so that she can like feel his smile but uh he doesn't want her to because uh you know then she'd know but they have a little bit of a date because her ride runs out on her and so he gives her a ride and uh he's like can I take you somewhere? It'll be a surprise. And you're like, oh, you're going to murder town, lady. (laughs) But he takes her to the zoo to feel the tigers. It's it's an amazing scene that just is like plunked into this, into this movie. Like you see them, you don't know what, what they're doing, what she's going to do, but they're somewhere. And there's a guy in, I think, scrubs or something. And then she just starts like moving her hand and over this, this sedated tiger. Yeah, it's a great scene. I mean, this is a scene that could easily have been cut out. It, you know, yeah. Or, or you know, it could have been something shorter. It could have been something that wouldn't involve uh, drugging a tiger. <laughs> uh, but the fact that they still included it, I mean, it's such a memorable moment. That was one of the things I, like if you asked me before I, I rewatched it, like what's the scene you remember most vividly from Manhunter? It's the tiger scene for it's sure. Like, it's like the albino alligator in Cave of Forgotten Dreams. It's like. Oh yeah, I do kind of remember that. <laughs> Well, uh, anyway, but yeah, it's 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 so amazing. But he takes her home, and uh, I mean, this is where it starts to get like a little bit creepy because uh, reminder, she this can't is where see it starts things. to get creepy. <laughs> <laughs> he makes her dinner, and then they're sitting on the couch, and he's watching a film strip, and it's this home movie of this family, presumably the next family that he's going to murder 
or one of the families that he already has murdered. Who knows? But she's just sitting there. There's no sound. She doesn't know what's happening. And also, he is, like, looking at her in a very objectifying sort of way, looking at her body parts and sort of looking back at the body parts of the women in this film. And, like, this isn't going to go anywhere good. And it doesn't because uh, she uh, makes out with them and they have sex and it's... uh, it yeah, is very that's what uncomfortable. They do. Yeah. Because you're like, hey, he's a serial killer, and uh, he's probably got some killing to do, you know? Let's just skip right past this part and not talk about it for a second longer. Because one thing I do <laughs> want to mention is I think a scene that happened earlier is like I, the the detective work that's happening is mainly involves them like trying to crack this code that Hannibal Lecture Mm-hmm. is using to communicate with with Francis through the the classified ads or the personal ads in the tabloid and <laughs> we get a scene where all the like FBI agents are like getting together to talk about it and one of the FBI agents is played by the guy who played Bulldog on Frasier oh which is kind of funny but what's very funny is one of the other FBI agents <laughs> in the same scene is Chris Elliott yeah yeah, why that was, was that? Why was that Chris Elliott? Did he even have like a line? He didn't even. He no did. Jokes? No, he did have okay. a line. Yeah. All right. Was it funny? It was hilarious. No, I. Yeah, I don't. I don't know why it was Chris Elliott, but it was Chris Elliott. He's got a big there's beard. A, there's also the man who demonstrates like the jaw thing. Is that man that Gene Hackman was very nice to before murdering in Extreme Measures? Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Good catch. Yeah. But eventually, I mean, he gets the information, and also, Dollar Hyde, he is looking forward to a nice second date with this lady, but then he sees her getting dropped off by the guy who regularly drops her off, and he sort of misinterprets her, him getting some, some, some schmuck off her face, something like that, as them like- I think the you word know, you're looking for is schmutz, not schmutz. schmuck. That's right, yeah. But he he goes into an insane rage. He pulls out like a gun with a silencer and just like takes him out like James Bond or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's where it all goes bad for Joan Allen because he he takes her to this to his place and he locks her up and then he puts on Inagata De Vida, which uh, great song, but at that moment probably not appreciated. And, of course, Inagata De Vida, for those who don't know, is the longest song ever. It's so long that, like, Dollar High puts it on, and then <laughs> Will Graham realizes what the plan is and, like, what's happening and where he is and all that, gets on a plane, flies there, and then manages to jump through the window after the drum solo just as the guitar <laughs> is coming back in. And it is fucking awesome it is so good i gotta say that tracks like i remember also when i was a kid i think before i saw this movie i bought that album on cassette at a garage sale and the 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 first half of that album if i'm remembering correctly is just like the first half of that album and the second side of the tape or the album is just in agata devita Yeah, it's just that one goddamn song. Yeah, so it is. It is very long. 
it's mostly drum solo. I think, you know, we can say that. But, I mean, this is the best use of that song, except for maybe in The Simpsons, where Bart puts the sheet music in front of the uh, church organist. I think that's why I bought the tape, because I yeah. knew it from that. Oh, and we forgot to mention that they figure out that the code Hannibal Lecter sent to Tom Noonan was the home address of Will Graham, which is mm. also, it's, it is a terrible thing that he's done, really, because... He basically like says to his family, like, don't worry, I'm going to keep you safe. Like, no one's going to know I'm there. And like, what, an hour into the investigation, like his photos in the paper. And then, like <laughs> Two days later, like a prominent serial killer has sent his address to another serial killer. Like his plan goes off the rails very quickly. And then there's that sad scene where he has to talk to his kid in the grocery uh, store aisle. And oh, he's like, so daddy. Daddy went to a hospital, and then he went to a mental institution, and uh, now he's better. Barry's mom had this newspaper. It said you were in a special hospital. Well, it was a regular hospital. And I was transferred into the psychiatric wing. That bothers you, doesn't it? I don't know. Was it because in the papers it said it was this man, Lecter? Mm-hmm. What happened? I've got more kind to of. say about that scene a little later. Cause it's I, a good I, scene. It's such a good scene. Yeah, but they do the whole thing. He shoots. I mean, the, the actual fight is a little bit anticlimactic. He just sort of like shoots dollar hide a bunch of times oh, and I, then he dies i know the other thing i wanted to say is i love the like because it's in all in the book like this is a story but the visual of of the detective looking at he you know the thing will graham keeps doing is he keeps t- taking out the two photos of the families mm-hmm. and he keeps looking at them as like what is the there's got to be a connection between these two families and they can't figure out what it is and he just keeps staring at these photos and eventually like the thing <laughs> The connection is the photos. Like mm-hmm. he f- realizes that the the film for the home movies was, and I guess presumably their photos was done by the same guy, which kind of anticipated that Robin Williams movie, I guess. Yeah, thank God digital came around because <laughs> a lot of creeps working in the photo developing industry. Now we can rest easy. Um, but yeah, I, I just love that. Like, yeah, when he figures that out, that's such a great scene, and that's such an intense scene too, where he's like leaning up against the window, and like mm. he knows he's cracked the case, and Dennis Farina is like calling to find out. It's like, oh, can you find out if uh, if those are, if they got developed at the same place? And like one of it, and at first it appears that like one of the reels of film wasn't developed at the same place, but Will Graham's just so confident, he's just like, look look under the sticker. it was he's just like so he knows he's cracked it and he's just like and the music is swelling like crazy no not that music oh and that the inagata defeated that was like a real serial killer that was obsessed with that song right right yeah i read that on the interweb yeah i guess he felt like i mean this is fucked up but he felt like that was his song with one of his victims and he was obsessed with it that's serial killers, man. Some, get some, some, get some hobbies. <laughs> so, some of them, to uh, to paraphrase the great Norm Macdonald, were just real jerks. Ah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, he saves Joan Allen. Every, it's a happy ending. 
Yeah, he goes back to his beach, and the 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 little thing that he was setting up on the beach, uh, I guess it trapped some turtles or something, and they're having a nice time. His metaphor um, was intact. That's right. Well, what, what what did the turtles represent, though? Well, the, turtle the, soup. No, his family and and maybe oh. his own soul. Because oh. because he was building a fence around them at the beginning, and they're like, "Are is are the animals like going to get them or kill them?" And he's like, "No, I think they'll be okay." And at the end, he's like, "Hey, like, yeah, they're all right. They're okay." Wow. Yeah. And that's Manhunter. Okay, we're gonna be right back after this break with some trivia questions. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, welcome back to Rewatchability, part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network. We're talking about Manhunter. We're going a little long. Still not as long as Inagata DeVita, but... Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> Somewhere in Agata DeVita's drum solo is still playing. <laughs> I do have some trivia questions for you, though, okay. about this movie. Um, Not about Iron Butterfly? No, no, okay. I don't know. Uh, well, is that is it true that it was just supposed to be in the Garden of Eden, but they were all so stoned that they just spelled it out phonetically? Yeah, I think so. Is I that, don't know. That's the, I think that was like a Trivial Pursuit question or something. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so question number one. The hotel that Will Graham stays in in this movie was also used as the primary location in which recent TV show? Oh, okay. Um, hmm. Uh, where was it filmed? It was filmed in, uh, this is a big hint, it was filmed in Atlanta. Uh, I mean, they film lots of things in Atlanta, or at least they did before. You know, they enacted all those awful laws. But uh, I don't know. Uh, Walking Dead? I don't know. No, good guess. But it was, uh, well, they film all the Marvel stuff there. And this was Loki. Oh, Loki what? Uh, it, just Loki. It's the oh, okay. uh, it's the Atlanta Marquee Marriott's. Uh, oh. Which is in a few movies, but it was the TVA which is like the uh, the time traveling agency thing in Loki. Oh, okay. All uh, right. Also, uh in that Silence of the Lambs podcast, I talked about Manhunter briefly and I said I that the place where they kept Hannibal reminded me of the Guggenheim. Oh. And it it does kind of look like the Guggenheim, but it's actually the Atlanta High Art Museum. Ah, also designed by Frank Frank Lloyd Wright, right? I don't think it was. Frank Lloyd Wright do the Guggenheim? Okay. I, I don't think so. I don't know. There is some, like, good... I mean, I love the architecture of the of the prison in, in the movie, like, where he's, like, after he sees Hannibal Lecter and he's sort of having a freakout, he runs down that, like, yeah. ramp, that, like, circular thing. Well, that's so what good. reminded me of the Guggenheim, yeah. And that's what... Uh, yeah, like, uh, the, that's why I think, like, this movie is both, like... 
it's not unrealistic. It was Frank Lloyd Wright. You're right. But I think didn't. Yeah. Frank, did Frank Gehry do like the additions to it or something recently? Probably. Um, yeah, you're right. You Frank Lloyd. guy named Frank. Well, who did the uh, High Art Museum? I don't have time to look that up. But uh, I, I like that it's like, you know, it's super stylized, but it's not unrealistic. You know, no. like it, it doesn't. It doesn't break the reality of the world, but it does have like uh, it does have like an over the top quality to it to set yeah, it in absolutely. this art museum. Uh, yeah. Okay. Question number two: Manhunter was almost directed by which other famous director? Not Michael Mann. It was almost directed by another famous director. Okay, I saw this. It was almost okay. directed by David Lynch. That's right. It was it was David Lynch because he Which would was have been working. insane. Yeah. Yeah. Or or very sane. Yeah. <laughs> or it would make total sense. But he was, you know, he was working with Dino De Laurentiis right. at the time who produced Dune. And so Dino wanted him to make Manhunter next and instead he wanted to make Blue Velvet, which he also did with Dino De Laurentiis. Ah, um, what if William Peterson just goes to a roadside cafe and exclaims that the coffee is great? <laughs> okay, last question. Which Silence of the Lambs cast member crashed the after party for Manhunter? Okay, I also saw this. It is, uh, what's his name? It's um Ted... Uh... Yes, you know the guy who plays uh, who plays the guy in Science of the Lambs, Buffalo Bill, Ted Levine. Ted Levine, that's the guy's name. He was in the touring company of Biloxi Blues and Mm -hmm. just happened to be in Miami when they were wrapping Manhunter. (laughs) (laughs) I guess he kind of had known William Peterson like in the past, but hadn't seen him in a long time. And he said he made a bet with one of his friends that he could get them into the party. So he said they went to the front door. And he told the security guard, he said, go find Michael Mann and tell him that a friend of Billy Peterson is here. And he said they, wow. just, they just let him in, him and his friends. So, yeah. And then, yeah, a few years later, he was the serial killer in another Hannibal Lecter movie. Interesting. So the movie was well-received by critics, but it did not do well at the box office. Mm. So that... The failure of this movie at the box office is kind of what led to the fucked up right situation with the Hannibal Lecter verse characters. Right, because the Hannibal Lecter TV series couldn't have Clarice. Like, is that is that the thing? Because yeah. then now there is a show called Clarice, but it's, it's I don't know Hannib- what's happening with that. Hannibal Lecter, or or the show Hannibal, couldn't have Clarice or Buffalo Bill. Any of the characters that were just in Silence of the Lambs couldn't be in that. And then conversely, there's a show called Clarice that's about a young Clarice Starling that can't overtly mention Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) Like, I haven't Mm. seen it, but what I've I've read is that they kind of have alluded to him existing. But... uh, (laughs) but haven't been able to actually name him. 
And the reason, and it's like a whole big mess that like, you know, there have been multiple articles about uh, with these two shows, you know, uh, happening in a short succession of time. And it all boils down to goddamn Dino De Laurentiis, who I, I was, I was trying to look up like the details of this deal, but like he somehow, like he bought the rights to the book Red Dragon, but also he bought like the movie rights to the character Hannibal Lecter. Hmm. So when Silence of the Lambs came out, he had like the first crack at optioning it. Okay. And he, because Manhunter had bombed, he was like, yeah, no, don't worry about it. And he didn't even read <laughs> it. And I think the rights ended up getting it. At one point they were like, owned by gene hackman oh wow and then and then jonathan demi got it but because he because de laurentis owned the rights to hannibal they had to get the okay from him and he was like oh yeah i don't care like you know that movie didn't make any money and of course silence of the lambs came out and was a huge hit so then he was like oh okay let's i'm back on board <laughs> so then, <laughs> right you know, he, De Laurentiis, produced all the other movies. He produced Hannibal and and the right. of Red Dragon, and yeah, uh, yeah. So, but that's why, like, because Orion separately had permission to make it from him, but they had the rights to everything that was in Silence of the Lambs, but not all the characters that were in the other books which my which head he retains the rights to i know it's very confusing but i just like that this whole complicated situation that has affected multiple tv shows is is can be boiled down to like one <laughs> crazy producer's like yeah eccentric whims um <laughs> uh yeah, he makes sense he also like there have been rumors about why it was renamed for right. Red Dragon. Because uh, the book is Red Dragon. The book is Red Dragon, but... Manhunter is not a great title. I, I, I'm going to kind of defend it a bit later in the show. Okay. But right. there are there's this never been confirmed, but the rumors have been... One rumor is that he didn't want people to think it was like a martial arts picture, like a <laughs> Bruce Lee type movie. Right, right. And the, I'm not uh, saying Willem Peterson can't kick some ass, but... The other reason was that Dino De Laurentiis had produced a movie called Year of the Dragon the previous mm. year in 85 that had bombed. Right. So he just wanted to avoid all dragon-related titles. I, again, these are just guesses. And I also could not find any definitive reason for why the character of Hannibal Lecter is spelled wrong. It's right. in, in the movie, it's spelled L-E-C-K-T-O-R, and the books is... Just L E C T E R, I think. Yeah, I don't know. No one seems to know why that happened. <laughs> Weird. Here's a fun bit of trivia, I thought. Okay. Manhunter and the remake, Red Dragon, directed by Brett Ratner. Oh, uh, fuck that guy. Two films that seem very, very different, especially like the style of them seems very different. They were shot by the same cinematographer. What? Yeah, Dante Spinotti. <laughs> it's like, this guy, he's done it once. He just probably has his old notes. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's just, there's such different, I mean, obviously, you yeah. know, like, you know, they're kind of working in conjunction with a lot of other creative uh you know, forces that are, that are directing them. But yeah, it's just funny to think that he would go back and, and shoot all of these 
same scenes with different actors and a different director and, and they would come out so different. I would just wonder if there are any like references to Manhunter in Red Dragon, like visual references or like nods. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, a lot of it feels similar from what I remember, but you know, cause they're, cause they're working off the same book. I mean, he, yeah, he yeah. shot a lot of Michael Mann's movies. He shot pretty much all of them after this, I guess. Last of the Mohicans, Heat, The Insider. Yeah, anyways, I just thought that was interesting that uh, you'd think, you think one is a total overhaul of the other, but uh, but yet it retained retained his work behind the camera. Interesting. Okay, here's my defense of the title Manhunter. There is a man. He is hunted. Well, I, I you know, watching this movie now, like I think it it is so much about Will Graham's trauma. He's right? the man he's hunting. Well, no, he's but trying to get himself back. One thing I didn't remember is like how much the movie is about like his arc is like that he is going to actually like take action against mm-hmm. these wrong. He's he's not like because that that scene we talked about in the grocery store. Where he's talking to the kid. He's like the kid's like, oh, and do you do you like arrest them or do you kill them or whatever? Do you, do you get the bad guys? He's like, no, I don't. I just figure out who it is. And then someone else, you know, actually. But he does kill him. Well, at the end he does. That's that's why. It's, and he likes know, it. <laughs> no, but like, and even like when he describes how he, how he let Hannibal attack him, it was, he had figured out who he was, but he went to a payphone to, to notify the right. police. And it was in that moment of like, uh, abdicating like responsibility for for taking this guy down that he did and i you know i i don't know if this was intentional but i can see this being a broader allegory for like dealing with trauma and specifically abuse Mm -hmm. because i can't even remember i was listening to someone talk about like and this is, you know, I obviously can't speak for victims of abuse. This, this is not something I can even, thankfully, you know, comprehend of what that's exactly like. But I, I was listening to someone talk about, like, this is very reductive, but, like, the, that people who have experienced abuse, some people, their psychological response to that is to enact the same harm against other people. Right. And and some people, their psychological reaction to that is to try to prevent that same trauma to ha- from happening to other people. Right. And I think there is something to that that idea uh, manifesting in the character of Will Graham, who is a character who who lives in the mindset of these people doing these horrible things, mm-hmm. and and you know his skill but also the thing that haunts him is his ability to to be that person to understand those horrible impulses to you know to to reenact these these tragedies and and the thing that ultimately like gets him you know the the growth that we see in the character is he becomes not only a character that revels in that understanding of these uh loathsome impulses or you know these terrible acts but he becomes a character who is going to become empowered to stop that from happening to right. to uh you know and at the end, and at the end it's the Joan Allen character and I think there's a very powerful shot of him just of the two of them embracing at the end and like it's kind of funny because like they're just like hugging and it's like it's very emotional and she's just like who are you 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think there is, and like that's partly why, like I think that 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 moment, like on one hand, like I could see someone watching this movie and thinking it is very very silly when Will Graham like. You know, against all, like, reason, like, there's, like, a SWAT team behind him, but he thinks the best thing to do is to run at full speed at a gut, at a window that... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who knows how, like, thick or reinforced that window could be, but he runs in a window, he bursts through the window, like, right as, like you said, the drum solo ends, and it's... But, like, the catharsis of that moment where he goes from being like, I'm not going to be merely a person that understands how someone could do this, I'm going to be the person the kind of person that understands how this could happen and stops that from happening ever again. Like That's who, his breakthrough. Who, yeah, who becomes a participant. Yeah, he literally breaks through. Oh. Uh, and I, yeah, so I think like that, all of that works. And that's why the title, like it, it is, you know, it it's called Manhunter, but like for the first 80% of the movie, he is continually, or we continually get people saying that he is not a manhunter he is mm-hmm. he is he collects clues and makes impressions but he does not go after people like and and also like we do hear about like how he killed Hobbes was it like who is also a character right. in, in in the Hannibal show but like and and that that was also like you know a, a, another trauma like he he doesn't mm-hmm. he, he isn't able to cope with 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 killing someone to to stop these so it's all about like yeah like like learning to to live with with how you know whatever actions he has to take to stop harm from coming to others like he he becomes a man hunter by the end of the movie which right. is why i think that 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 title given that they cut so much out about the tom noonan character i think that the title manhunter makes so much more sense right than red dragon would uh, yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah I, I buy that okay that, that makes sense to me yeah i mean it's still a goofy name i remember when mindhunter came out everyone was making fun like of that manhunter <laughs> <laughs> you know i was seeing some people talking about like the the moon imagery uh it's i mean it's very obvious but like the 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 moon like Francis has a giant moon, like like a poster right. of the lunar surface in his apartment, and yeah. also we learned that he he hunts by moonlight. He's mm-hmm. like we said, he he only kills on on full moons, and then Will is kind of represented as like the polar opposite. Like we meet him and and we you know in leave his character not only in the day but like with the setting and rising suns like he is yeah. every time we see him in his home like it's very much defined by like the sun so i, right. I don't know again I, it's this is all pretty basic stuff but i i also like that like these are also big 80s style like how many 80s action movies have we seen where it's like you know the characters constantly like is in like a a sunset or you know that is is uh, kind of framed in a sunset or a sunrise, you know, like especially mm-hmm. like the '80s. I, I'm thinking of even other William Peterson movies, but like to have that be like a a thematic constant. I think you know it's it's not just for style for style's sake in this movie. Everything has has a purpose, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I think so. Last thing I have in my notes is that. Uh... <laughs> this is just a random thing, but Brian Cox did an interview where he talked about the movie and uh 
how he's kind of proud of it and and doesn't regret you know that he didn't get to do Silence of the Lambs and stuff uh, and is still proud of his take on the character and then just in the interview someone said it's quite a contrast to the Brett Ratner version and Brian Cox's response <laughs> was well the Brett Ratner is well the less said about Brett Ratner the better <laughs> so indeed and I you know I think that sums it up nicely um, yeah <laughs> I will say I, I again I haven't watched this since I think I saw it in the theater but the the casting on Red Dragon was really good. Um, oh yeah, for William the most Peterson's part, amazing. Like no, no, not Manhunter, but Red Dragon. Oh, like Ray Fiennes. No, he's good. Philip Seymour Hoffman. But yeah, I think the the thing or part of the reason why that movie does not work is Edward Norton. In no, that. he's not great. And I think at the time I was like, oh, he's too young. Like he seems so young, but he's probably like the same age as William Peterson. But William Peterson is just so good at playing this guy who's been through the ringer. Like this guy who does not want to be going back to this, even though he's probably like 30 or 35 or whatever. Like he seems haggard. He seems traumatized. Mm. He's got, he's got this, this, yeah, half, half glazed over expression when he's not like just saying dumb shit out loud it's very good like the uh (laughs) he he plays a lot of like really subtle notes and also there's a lot of time where he's just not speaking where he's fucking intense yeah and yeah like i mean i mostly knew him from the csi and so when i first saw it i i guess i thought i was a little bit like Oh, this guy is going to be like the hero is going to take on Hannibal Lecter, but he's just so good. He has like, I don't know. He has like a certain like animal magnetism, you know, like he really feels like an equal to Hannibal Lecter and to the other people. Like there's a little bit of darkness, a little bit of danger. He's yeah. And also he's to contrast with that. The parts with his family just seem like so tender and like. Yeah. Wonderful. When he's like talking to his kid, it's just like it's heartbreaking because he's just like laying it out the best that he can as like, you know, a parent so that his kid will understand this terrible thing that he's been through. Yeah. It's yeah, it's a really great performance. And I I watched To Live and Die in L.A. for the first time in the summer. And uh, another just great performance. Wait, didn't I see on... Did I see that William Friedkin was considered to play Hannibal Lecter? Yeah, I didn't mention that either. But yeah, supposedly that was Michael Mann wanted to cast. I guess. Yeah, it seems so weird. <laughs> we look at the file, Hannibal. Well, when we were making The Exorcist, <laughs> I, I decided. <laughs> Bill, you're, it's pea soup. <laughs> you're playing Hannibal Lecter. I thought it Exorcist Two was one of the worst pictures I've ever seen. <laughs> no, Bill, that what it sounds like. Bill, I don't know, kind of. <laughs> I can I can do a good impression if I concentrate, but I've lost it now. Yeah, but William Peterson, he's great in that film, and like I think even before CSI, like I think the first thing I saw him in was like the Dad in Fear. <laughs> oh. Yeah, not great. But yeah, he's great. He's great <laughs> in these movies. And uh, so wrapping things up, did you think it was rewatchable? 
I really did. I had a great time with it. There are so many like really great images. Uh, I think it's like, yeah, it really holds up, especially compared to the other bad Hannibal Lecter movies. I I, I like the subtlety. I like the stylization. I like all the. I like how it's so firmly rooted in the eighties, and it uses all that stuff to like really good effect. Like, I mean, the music is just so weird, but it makes. It it really makes some of like the stuff really chilling, you know. Also, it, it, I was gonna say it does sort of remind me of Twin Peaks in a lot of parts, like the synthes- uh, synthesizer sort of like low droning sounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was great. I think it's a it's a classic, and there are so many like really great performances in it. Tom Noonan is also like yeah. really great, like yeah. where he's like sitting in his van, and you know he's. I guess he's decided that, like, now he's got to kill this person that he was so into, like, yesterday. It's it's terrifying, the look on his face. It's terrifying, but also, like, deeply human in a way that makes me terrified because I don't want to humanize serial killers and, you know, all that. But, uh, yeah, I think it's a really rewatchable movie. Uh, what about yeah. you, Cam? Yeah, totally. You hadn't I, seen this since you were a kid. I know, yeah. It was definitely I mean, I I I I didn't love it as a kid, but also like I I anticipated that I would like it now given that uh you know, I I've obviously seen I I was I was looking forward to it as a Michael Mann movie more than, you know, mm-hmm. a, a Thomas Harris adaptation. It's got that thing where the cops are the same as the bad guys. I love that shit. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like it's such a straightforward kind of story, but there is just something about the execution of it. There's something about the the characters. I mean, it's weird that like even the Hannibal Lecter character as it's written in the movie doesn't have a lot of like what makes that character uh compelling in other movies like they don't even reference the fact that he's a cannibal in this movie yeah uh, that's right we don't yeah and like when we there's one part where they talk about like his crimes and they're like oh he was killing off like college girls or something and it's like that doesn't sound like sounds and they so also generic. they also don't mention that he was or in this version he wasn't will graham's therapist Right. Which I'm pretty sure the book does, because that is obviously what, you know, forms the basis of the show. And is, right. and is also, I think, in the, in the remake. But, yeah, they they don't delve into that as much. They don't, and they don't, yeah, they don't, they, Hannibal Lecter is, is, you know, peripheral to most of the story. But I I do think what we see is pretty great. He doesn't even have like really an arc or like a resolution, does he? We just he just sort of like he's you know warns Dollar Hyde about you know tells him to kill William Peter's family, and then we don't really hear from him again. Yeah, no, that's true. It's so weird. I yeah, and I you know I I think I'm glad that these stories have also been you know taken by people like you know Brian Fuller who did the Hannibal show, and I was reading an interview with him where he was talking about like how he he loves all these movies, like he he loves Silence of the Lambs, but he also loves Manhunter, and he also loves the Hannibal Ridley Scott movie. I think he said he doesn't like Hannibal <laughs> Rising, the terrible prequel. <laughs> oh yeah, but he's like you know like I mean the thing that he can do. Uh, you know, telling these stories 
more than 30 years later is he's like, you know, like you watch Manhunter and that's the story of, you know, a room full of like white guys making decisions. And like, he took those stories and like, you know, he diversified them quite a bit. Like there are characters in Manhunter, like Dr. Bloom, who Mm -hmm. we know from the Hannibal show is like a female character. So I like, and Freddie Lowndes too. That's true, yeah. Jack Crawford is obviously played by Lawrence Fishburne. So yeah, I, I do like, I mean, that is one thing about like, looking back at this movie, it's obviously not very diverse. There's, oh, yeah. you know, William Peterson's so wife does not get a lot to do. She doesn't even like seem that upset that, <laughs> that his plan was so terrible. <laughs> and then he, he immediately, uh, yeah, was was put them in danger <laughs> <laughs> yeah she she could have been a little bit angrier she like comes to meet him on the beach and she was like oh i just heard you solve the murder on the radio yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then gives him a big old hug <laughs> so yeah i mean there's there's some stuff like that that is is does not hold up as well but man yeah just just the the style of it the performances the yeah, there's something about it. I'm really glad I rewatched it before it expired on <laughs> the most expensive streaming service. <laughs> mm. And yeah, that's it for this week on rewatchability. As always, you can subscribe and like on uh, whatever podcast app you listen to the show on. That would be helpful. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at rewatchability, facebook.com slash rewatchability, all that stuff. Instagram is a thing. I Someone does. I don't know who. Is it you, it's Rob? It's me. Oh, okay. I make the Instagrams. Is it just a lot of like sponsored content of like skin creams? and? <laughs> I'm really trying to get like a Maybelline yeah, sponsorship. And uh, until next time, don't... Don't, don't eat anybody. Don't eat anybody. Come on, guys. It's not... It's rude. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.